6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Well, we're going to continue our study of the epistles to the Thessalonians. And we never enter the Word of God without prayer. So let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the privilege that you've given us with your word. And we pray, Father, for your spirit to attend this evening. We pray, Father, that you would just open our hearts and lives to what you have for us this night as we commit this evening and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our coming King, indeed. Amen. Well, we've completed our review of First Thessalonians, five chapters, and we're now going to undertake what I, with my tongue in my cheek, called Third Thessalonians. Don't look for it in your Bible, because I'd be very surprised if you have Third Thessalonians in your Bible. But I'll explain why I'm using that particular term, because that way you'll remember a fundamental about what we're going to study here. And we're going to be in chapter one of what I'm going to somewhat facetiously call Third Thessalonians. And so let's first of all realize that what Paul told his protege, Timothy, he said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture. Now, he was primary reference was to the Old Testament, but even Peter endorses Paul's writings as Scripture in his letters. So we're not going to split those hairs tonight, but all Scripture was given by inspiration of God. Now, that's, that's quite a phrase. That Greek actually says a word that means God breathed. And the more we study the text, the original text, both Old and New Testament, the more we're stunned at what the computers reveal about its structure and detail. It has properties that if you take one letter out, they evaporate. We begin to realize that not only did Moses get the Torah from God, he gave it to him letter by letter. And we find those same kinds of characteristics scattered through the New Testament also. All scriptures give an inspiration to God, profitable for four primary reasons. For doctrine, what does that mean? For what tells you what's right. For reproof, that tells you what's not right. And for correction, that's how to get it right. And for instruction, how to stay right. See, when I say doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction, those are abstractions. They don't rattle when you shake them. But I'll tell you, it tells you what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and then how to stay right. That's operative, isn't it? If we look at the primary epistles here, we have Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 2 Thessalonians. Not, those are not in chronological order. Romans, of course, is one of the principal epistles about doctrine. First and second Corinthians are the reproof of those doctrines. Galatians, how to correct those doctrines. 
all three of those have to do with soteriology its, as its primary emphasis. Soteriology is the study of salvation. How do you get saved? And so forth. So the doctrine of that and the reproof and correction are those, the first three. Another major doctrinal epistle is the, the epistle of the Ephesians. And Philippians are the reproof to that, and Colossians the correction of that. And that is doctrine having to do with ecclesiology. What is ecclesiology? The study of the church, the mystical church. We're not talking about church buildings. We're talking about the real church, the church that Christ is building. And we, that we are part of it. Now, First and Second Thessalonians are also doctrinal, and they're unique because they're the primary, it turns out, they're the primary epistles for eschatology. Among the epistles, a lot of important passages on eschatology. In fact, the real way to get at it, the reason eschatology is so difficult for many, it requires the whole counsel of God. It leans very heavily on the entire package. So you, don't, you avoid one-verse theology in general, certainly with eschatology. But in the New Testament epistles, we'll discover that the first two epistles that Paul wrote, apparently, were the first and second Thessalonians, and they are become our most precious resources from an eschatological or end-time point of view. So the Thessalonian epistles, the most important eschatological or end-time epistles of the New Testament. First Thessalonians, we just finished, it, among its many treasures, it ha, it's the key, one of the key passages of the harpazo, the rapture as it's called in the Latin. It also deals with, as we noticed last time, in chapter 5 of that first epistle, the day of the Lord, a widely misunderstood term, by the way. We know it also as the day of wrath in some passages. It's called the uh, time of Jacob's trouble by Jeremiah. Those are all evidencing this particular period of time called the day of the Lord. Many people misunderstand a remark that John makes on Patmos in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And maybe that must mean it's Sunday. No, it isn't. Nowhere in the New Testament does it call Sunday the Lord's Day. What it should be translated is the day of the Lord. Oh, he was transported in spirit into that period of time known as the day of the Lord, about which Joel spends chapter 2 and, other, and, and on and on. So that day of the Lord, we're going to talk more about that, but we had that concept uh, last time in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Well, we're now in, I'm going to suggest to you that there apparently was a forgery floating around that I'm facetiously calling 2 Thessalonians. Apparently a forgery by Paul. Because 3 Thessalonians, as I'm facetiously calling it here, was Paul's response to that forgery. So I'm calling, what, I, what, what I'm calling 3 Thessalonians is that letter which we have in our Bibles that's labeled 2 Thessalonians. And I'm just indulging in this to get across the idea that part the reason this 2 Thessalonian letter was written is in response to a forgery, and that's not a problem. You won't understand it unless you understand what that forgery apparently said and why they were so upset about it. Okay? That's why I'm making this emphasis here. Now, this so-called third epistle of, of Thessalonians... Paul's response to the second one, will deal among, it's going to be very precious to us, it's very brief, it's three short chapters, but chapter two will be a key to understanding the sequence of end time events. 
There are lots of debates and good scholars that have different views about exactly what sequence things happen. And we're going to get a great insight into all of that by studying very carefully, very precisely, second chapter of what we call Second Thessalonians. Okay. First Thessalonians started by looking back. It talked about the conversion evangelism and the aftercare of that early church. Remember, Paul was there three weeks and then later wrote them a letter. And so what he wrote about was what he had taught them in the first three weeks of that church's history. And then that first epistle looked forward and dealt with what we know as the harpazo, or commonly called the rapture. Okay, now, 2 Thessalonians, it followed the 1 Thessalonians by only a few months, apparently, in the opinion of some experts. One of the things to understand in the context that they're experiencing here is persecutions have begun. There have been all kinds of uproars throughout Paul's ministry, the first missionary journey, all that, lots of uproar. They were caused by Jews stirring up trouble. But now we're starting to see, at this point in time, the beginnings of persecution by the Roman Empire. In the previous context, the primary passion of the Roman administration was to keep peace. They got upset when there was any uprising and problems. The Jewish leadership, when they would constantly stir up problems with Paul. That's one thing that especially the writings of Luke, in both the book of Acts and as well as the Gospel of Luke, emphasize. But here are these things, now the, thing, the tide's changing here. The persecutions had begun. Pliny the Elder writes as follows, it was in Thessalonica that the first Gentiles were killed in the Roman Empire. Think about that. The local Roman governor in that part of the country said that every Christian had to bow before a statue of Augustus Caesar. He had been deified, and statues of Caesar were erected everywhere. Christians who didn't obey the edict were persecuted. So this, is, this, this persecution was key to emperor worship, which, of course, the Gentiles refused to do. The Gentile Christians refused to do. It was in Thessalonica that they dreamed up the procedure of offering a cask of wine on the altar to Venus, or Caesar, and then publicly taking it out to the marketplace and sprinkling it on all the vegetables, and on the meat, and other goods, announcing that it had all been dedicated to God. See, they did that deliberately. Why? Because anyone who bought or ate of it thereby worshipped a false god. Christians who stopped buying in the marketplace as a witness immediately became marked. The first crucifixions, the first burnings, and the first great persecutions of Christians began then. So this is important to understand, and ask yourself a question now, why would the church in Thessalonica be upset about that? They obviously didn't like persecution, who does? But they began to assume that they either had been mistaught, or the rapture had taken place, or they'd missed it, or something. They, they were upset because this didn't fit their understanding or expectations eschatologically. So let's look at the second epistle of the Thessalonians. I'll call it Our, Our Blessed Hope Part 2. The first chapter is going to talk about the present distress that they're experiencing because the persecutions have begun. The second chapter will deal with the order of events that we're going to want to really understand for lots of reasons. We're going to discover that the whole Thessalonican church was upset by 
among other things, an apparent forgery that was being circulated, either circulated or alluded to. Somebody said they had a private letter from Paul, and it said such and so, and they're all upset. One of the things you've got to think through is why were they upset? What is it possible that Paul might have said in this forgery that got them so unglued? So unglued that Paul felt compelled to write a letter in, re in rebuttal. That's what we're dealing with here. We're going to discuss, we go in the sequence of events, we get in this strange theological posture, it's coming soon, but not yet. They're supposed to expect it at any moment, and yet, not yet. Then the final chapter, we'll wrap it up in terms of how we, work, we should work for the night is coming. Okay, let's just read the first chapter through to get a flavor of the thing, and then we'll go back and unpack it verse by verse. It starts out, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. I didn't get that with the right southern inference there. That every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. You see, we know Paul was a southerner, we didn't know, but he's not a Texan, because the Philippian letter, he says he's learned in whatever state he finds himself there and to be content. So we know he's not a Texan. But we're going on. Verse 4, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in the saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you is believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all good pleasure of his goodness and work of his faith and power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the letter. It starts out, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he includes the greetings of two other guys. Silas, which is his short contraction, if you will, of Silvanus, which is the Greek, and Timothy. Timotheus is Timothy in the Greek form. These three men, by the way, understand they, they, they endured a great deal, all three of them, for the gospel. Paul and Silas were in prison together at Philippi. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had gone to Thessalonica. Paul had to leave them. He waited for them in Athens, and finally they caught up with him in Corinth. And it was at that time that Paul wrote his first epistle to the Thessalonians to answer some of their questions. That's what we went through in the first chapter. Okay. And it's unto... See, epistles were written to the church, not from the church. Nothing authoritative comes from the church, as J. Vernon McGee would loves to point out. It doesn't teach. It is to be taught. Okay, the uh, church of Thessalonians in God, 
In other words, it's a sound local church. What you're going to discover here, there's no criticism of any of their doctrines. Okay. Paul continues, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace always comes first, then peace. Because it's because of His grace we have peace. And grace is the greatest need of the human heart. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Now the word bound there is the word for paying a debt. See, he owes it to them to thank God for them. Get that concept across. It's very important. See, we are bound to thank God always for you. See, it's, it, it, he regards that he has an obligation, like paying a debt, to thank God for them. Because, as it is meat. That's an old-fashioned way of saying proper. It was meat. It's an old English way of meaning it was proper because of your faith growth and so forth. Because that's your faith growth exceeding, and the charity of every one of you. There's that old-fashioned word. In the Greek, it's agape. In, in Latin, it's caritas, which means once meant, originally meant love that's dispensed to others, like benevolence, benevolent goodwill, motivated by Christian love. Unfortunately, the word charity today really has taken on the coloration of just being a dole or a handout. But anyway, so we, we now, would in a more modern way, we would translate the, you know, the love of every one of you. Their faith continued to grow in faith and in answer to Paul's prayers, as he, Paul mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We had that same emphasis back there and also chapter 4. It's interesting that hope is not mentioned here. It's an unwarranted interpretation that the Christian hope was creating confusion in their minds. That's not what's confusing. There is something causing confusion. That ain't it. But there is a practical problem Paul is dealing with here, before we go on any further. How should we deal with Christians who are doing well in their discipleship? That sounds like a strange question, isn't it? It's an interesting problem. One thing you can do is say, well done. That borders on flattery and has a risk of promoting pride and may rob God of His glory. Think about that. That's a problem. I don't want to, you know, build on someone's pride. Boy, you're doing well. That opens the door for some stumbling here, doesn't it? Well, the alternative is to keep your comments privately in prayers and say nothing. Well, if you do that, that permits discouragement, doesn't it? So that's a dilemma to think about. The third possibility, and that's what Paul chooses to do here. He thanks God for them and tells them he is doing so. He affirms without flattery. He encourages without puffing up. See the subtlety there? That's a little skill that you might be sensitive to. So Paul doesn't flatter them. He thanks God for them and their progress. He thanks God for their progress. Interesting ellipsis going on there. Are we growing in faith every day? Do you trust the Lord in all things? Or are you just trust God for the things which you allow, <laughs> rather than be concerned with what He allows? Or do the urgent things preempt the important? Boy, that's a threat in every one of our lives. The urgent things tend to displace the important things. Think about that. Tribulation works patience, patience experience, and experience hope, according to Romans 5. 
Let's continue verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. There's that word patience. The actual Greek word means remaining under, like under a load or something of that nature. You have to remember the storm is what measures the sailor, not the calm sea. You find out what kind of a sailor you are in a storm, not in a calm sea. You won't find out what kind of a pilot you are until you've had to make a real forced landing. The practice ones don't really tell you. When you've had to make your first real forced landing, you discover how you're put together. Interesting. You realize Paul had his own trials in Corinth, and that was going on while this letter was being written to them. Verse 5, which is manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. And we talked about persecution a little bit earlier, and that, of course, is very heavily influenced by Revelation 6, from verse 9 to 11, and so on. See, we're not left on this earth in order to be popular. We're here to cause ferment and uproar, hatred and strife. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 34. Think not that I come to send peace on earth. I come not to send peace, but a sword. Now that's not a license just to be obnoxious. That's not a license just to create a, an irrelevant furor of some kind. No, but it is a call to stand. As what Jude would say, to contend for your faith. Continuing, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. You see, the principle of requital lies at the very basis of our belief in a moral universe. Not good, but evil creates a moral problem for us. We have a tough time dealing with the existence of evil. We have a tough time dealing with that in terms of a moral universe. But clearly, present injustice require a future retribution. But it's God's retribution, not ours. That's the tough lesson to learn. A world in which justice was not done at last would not be God's world at all. But he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Again and again throughout the scripture, but most notably in Romans 12. See, retribution is pictured as overtaking men in the world to come, but there are passages which indicate that it may also operate here and now. And, and, and Romans 1 deals with that and, and a lot of other passages. But the main underscoring observation is that all that live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. We're not greater than the Master, and he, they persecuted him. So persecution is not the same thing as a period coming which is defined by Christ himself as the great tribulation. That's a very special case we're going to deal with when we get to the next chapter. Remember the promise to Timothy. Everybody misses one of these words here. It says, if you suffer with him, you will also reign with him. There's a widespread presumption within the Christian body that if you're, a, if you're saved, if you're in Christ, you're going to rule with him. It doesn't say that. You may be eligible for the opportunity, yes, but you'll notice whenever that's talked about, there's a conditional in front of it. What's the first two-letter word in that sentence? If. If you suffer with him, you shall also reign with him. Think about it. You need to be a metakoi, a partaker. That's really what you're called to. And there'll be people in heaven that are saved 
that are not necessarily ruling with him. There's going to be all kinds of people in the kingdom. There'll be subjects and sovereigns. And that's a whole study we won't derail tonight, but let's go on. Verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And he goes on. He's speaking here of the day of the Lord. And that's for the next, uh, the, uh, next four verses, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And uh, we covered some of that in the previous two chapters of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. Now, he comes for us, saints, but now he's coming with them. Chapter 4 and 5, he came for his saints. He snatched them forcibly. The word harpazo means. But now he's coming with his saints. Hmm. Matthew 25 deals with the judgment of the Gentiles. Ezekiel 28 deals with the judgment of the Jews. Not necessarily simultaneously, different occasions, but they're well dealt with in the Scripture. Moving on. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who? Vengeance. This is not vindictiveness, simply the administration of unwavering justice. God's holiness is at stake here. You know, it's interesting as we touch on this, I'm doing a personal study, re-examining the issue of the fear of God. So many people misunderstand that. I have been given several wonderful sermons and messages on, well, it doesn't mean terror, it means reverent, reverential awe. And there are places, there's 17 different words involved, by the way, in the study. That's one of them. And so, uh, yes, very often uh, we're called to a rever reverential over in awe of God, no question. No, there are also places that the men of God trembled before His majesty. There's a place for that. And an, we need to understand, yes, we're beneficiaries of His grace, praise God. We're beneficiaries of His mercy, praise God. But let's never lose sight of the fact that He's God, and He's a holy God. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.